Uh, Lord, you know sometimes we get into our routine and we just let things float by. We just sort of get through it. And um, it doesn't really kind of filter into the deeper place of our consciousness. So, Lord, today, uh, through all that music that brings us close, through the praying and the scripture reading and, and now in the message, Lord, just keep bringing it home to us. Don't let us uh, let it bounce off our minds and hearts, but let it sink in deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I suspect that uh, some of you this morning here would probably not call yourself a Christian. Actually, I, I hope that's the case. I hope that not everybody here feels like, yeah, I'm solid with Jesus because we want to be the kind of place, the kind of community where uh, you can come and not have things, you feel, have to feel like they're all figured out or maybe even if you agree. I want Faith Westwood to be the kind of community where skeptics are welcome. Skeptics are welcome. And I want you to know we promise to do our best to not be afraid of uncomfortable questions. Because if we can't ask good, hard questions about our faith, then it's not worth a whole lot, is it? And today, we're talking about prayer. You know, sometimes you hear a Christian uh, say that, you know, I was, had surgery and, man, I recovered so well, so quickly. It was such an answer to prayer. Now, we Christians, we talk like that, but if you're a skeptic, that creates all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Like, what about the person who recovered just as well who doesn't believe in prayer? What about the person who believed in prayer and yet then had a very complicated recovery? What about the person who prayed and had a great recovery, a quick recovery, and said it was an answer to prayer and then had unforeseen complications? Well, I would say those are great questions. And the, fa the, the fact is that prayer cannot be scientifically proven. The efficacy of prayer cannot be scientifically proven. There's always another possible hypothesis besides God. Wouldn't you say? There's always another possible explanation besides prayer. Now, I believe in prayer. I believe in prayer because I believe in Jesus and Jesus prayed and he taught us to pray. But I want you to know that there's still so much about prayer that is a mystery to me. I cannot quantify the impact of prayer. And I, I even find my, some, myself sometimes being a little skeptical about things when people say their prayer was answered, you know. Especially when someone says, yeah, tornado missed our house because we prayed. Then, of course, we don't mention that the praying family down the street got everything wiped out and lost it all. How do you explain all that? And, of course, if you want to kind of explain away prayer it's really not very hard to do that I mean you can always find a way uh, psychologists remind us how easy it is to fall into what they call confirmation bias you know what that is confirmation bias is when we selectively pay attention to evidence that supports our conclusion and ignore evidence that refutes it scientists do it Politicians do it, right? Teachers do it. Doctors do it. Historians do it. Theologians do it. 
and believers do it. We gravitate to what supports what we already believe. Yes, somebody who uh, just bought a car. Do they like that car they just got? Yeah, they like that car. And they got a great deal on it, right? Whoo! Have you ever talked to somebody who just bought a car and said, well, I got a bad deal? No, they always got a great deal. Because that's what they want to believe. If you're falling in love, what is that person like that you're falling in love with? Oh, they're wonderful. Love is blind. Why? Confirmation bias. We believe what we want to believe, so we're totally focused on what supports that belief while ignoring anything to the contrary. So, my question is, is that what prayer is? Is it just nothing more than confirmation bias projected onto God? Well, I would say two things. First, if you're skeptical about prayer, it's important to realize that confirmation bias is a two-way street. It can come into play just as much in denying prayer as in believing in it. Think about that. Second, if you're skeptical, I want you to know that for Christians, prayer is not mostly about praying for what we want and trying to get it. For us, prayer is way more about having a relationship with God. That's what prayer, prayer is simply relating with God. It's talking, it's listening, it's pouring out our hearts, it's uh, silence, it's crying out in desperation, it's, it's expressing our appreciation. So prayer is engaging in that relationship. And as in any healthy relationship, you're free to express what you need, what you want, what you hope for, Jesus says that God loves us and that God is eager to give good gifts to his children. So he tells us to ask. And that's, so we do, we ask. And we, and we pray believing that prayer not only changes us, which is also true, prayer changes us, but somehow God works through our prayers to bring change even into the world. And while we can never prove prayer, many of us have had some uncanny experiences with prayer. Experiences that defy the odds of coincidence. Larry Berryman, who uh, read our scripture here a little bit ago, um, said I could share his story. Uh, Some decades ago, he was reading uh, the World Herald about the farm crisis back then. Specifically, there was a story about a widow in Taylor, Nebraska, which is north of Kearney. Uh, anybody ever been to Taylor, Nebraska, besides Larry? Maybe. Yeah, Larry has. <laughs> yeah, there you have too. Okay. Uh, all she had left to eat was a half a box of cereal. Her pantry was bare except for that. But she trusted, the article said, that God would take care of her. And Larry's prayer was, Lord, let me know your will. Show me what you want me to do. And an idea came to him. 
he went to church and announced that in one week he was going to take a van load of food to Taylor, Nebraska to help this lady and all of the other hurting people up there. So the church started a food drive. They started collecting food. But God had bigger ideas. A local TV station learned about it, ran a story on it, and food started pouring in from everywhere. So a week later, instead of a van, a semi-truck was pulling out with 24,000 pounds of food. What if Larry had not prayed? What would have happened if he had not prayed? And asked God, I want to know your will. Show me what to do. I suspect that nothing would have happened. That's why our message today is entitled, Unless People Pray. It's a, and the big idea for today uh, comes straight from our book by Maxie Dunham, which is our guidebook throughout Lent, uh, The Intercessory Life. He says this, There are some things God either cannot or will not do until and, say the last three words with me, will you? Unless people pray. Isn't that powerful? They're, they're so, so striking. There are some things God either cannot or will not do until and unless people pray. You know, why is it so easy for us to believe that God works through human activity? Yeah, you know, going out and we got our pantry going and God's working through our activity. So if God lets us be his instruments through our activity, why not also through our prayers? Today we're going to look at an example in the Bible of people praying. Uh, please open your scripture to uh, Acts chapter 12, starting with verse 1. In the Pew Bible, it's on page 1104. Uh, and maybe you came today and you say, oh man, I'm kind of new to this Bible stuff. They open Bibles here. Well, we do. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, we want to give you one. Uh, just take that Pew Bible home. You can have it. You can read it at home. We'll stick another one in the Pew later. Now, I want to say this up front about uh, the Scripture today. It's not going to answer every question about prayer. As a matter of fact, I, I chose this passage because it raises questions about prayer. Now, just so you know, uh, the book of Acts begins after the resurrection of Jesus, about 30 A.D., just before his ascension into heaven. Now, by the time we get to chapter 12, we might be a decade or so out from that, right? This event takes place in Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Couple of notes here. First, this is the third person in the Bible named Herod. Did you know there were three of them? Yeah. Uh, it started with Herod the Great, who was the ruler when Jesus was born, died shortly after that. Then his son Herod Antipas uh, came, and uh, he was in charge of a smaller region, uh, more, mostly just Galilee. Uh, he was the one who beheaded John the Baptist, and he also questioned Jesus shortly before he went to the cross. Now, a decade or so later after that meeting, uh, we have Herod Agrippa, 
who is the grandson of the first Herod and the nephew of the second one. And like all the other, both other Herods, Herod Agrippa was a political conniver. Another interesting tidbit uh, here is the word arrest. In the original Greek, the word arrest literally means to, that they laid hands on them. And when you think about it, that's kind of what our word arrest means too. It means to seize and stop, to catch and hold. Am I close, Joe? Is that what, what arrest means? Okay, yeah. Ask somebody in long-time law, law enforcement. So Herod had some, some Christians arrested. Uh, you know, there are places in the world today where Christians are, if you're a Christian, you're going to get arrested, or worse. FYI, the most dangerous place to be a Christian, though, in the world is not in a Muslim country. Did you know that? It's North Korea. It's the most dangerous place to be a Christian. So, if you've still got your Bible open, verse 2, he, that is Herod, had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. James and John, remember them? They used to be, the, they were the fishermen that Jesus asked to be his disciples. Uh, Jesus called them, the two of them, the, son, the sons of thunder. Uh, Herod had James executed. I guess he considered the Christians a threat and he was trying to intimidate them. Now, Herod began to realize the political advantage of this move we see in verse 3 when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, probably meaning the Jewish leaders at the temple. He proceeded to seize Peter also. Now, I won't read the next verse and a half, but uh, Luke makes a point of telling us that the, secu the security measures taken there, four shifts of four uh, guards each uh, every four hours. Um, Herod has not taken any chances. Last time Peter was put in jail along with all the other apostles. The next morning the cell was empty and the apostles were out in the temple courtyard telling every everybody about new life in Jesus. So this time Peter's under high security. 16 guards ought to be able to, to hold one man. Now, let's look at verse 5. So, you, you with me in verse 5? So Peter was kept in prison, but, and read the rest of the verse with me if you would, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And, of course, from there, as Larry read for us, it it uh, tells about Peter's miraculous escape, which even he didn't see coming. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. What were they praying? What do you think? Well, James was just killed, executed. I'm sure they're praying for Peter to be spared. Of course, they got more than they bargained for, more than they prayed for, because that night, Peter shows up at the house where they're having the prayer meeting. Surprise! But the really sticky question is, and this is why I picked this passage, why was James executed and Peter rescued? Didn't they pray for James? Well, I'm sure they did. It doesn't really say, but, you know, you read the book of Acts, you know, the believers, they're always praying it up. They're praying, and they must have prayed for all those who were arrested. And God listened to those prayers, but still... 
James is executed. Peter is delivered. But wait, you say. Look, it says that they were praying earnestly for Peter. Were they not praying earnestly enough for James and now they're praying more earnestly for Peter? Let me tell you, you start thinking like that and you're going to get your mind all messed up. Because you never can take your temperature closely enough to see if you're praying earnestly enough. And besides, that's not what Acts 12 is about. It's not a lesson scolding Christians and telling them, see, if you had prayed more earnestly for James, he'd be alive today. It's not, that's not what this is about. But it is giving us a model of earnest prayer. The word translated earnestly is the same one that was used to describe Jesus when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, trying to decide whether he's going to really go to the cross or not. He was going through all this agony. It says he was praying earnestly, fervently, pouring out his soul. The word earnestly comes from a verb that means to stretch out the hand. And so I think it's kind of a neat thing here how while, while Herod has laid hands on the Christians, the Christians uh, are stretching out their hands fervently stretched to God in prayer. And for some reason, Luke tells this story and he doesn't seem to stop to ask why. James is killed and Peter is spared. He just tells what happened. This is just what happened. When it comes to, to these kinds of questions, here's what I've decided. I may not understand God's rules of engagement in this world, but I cannot let that stop me from praying. You know what I mean by rules of engagement? Military term, uh, uh, rules of engagement. They, they, they guide what personnel can and cannot do in a conflict situation. Seems to me that God must have his own rules of engagement about how he's going to operate in this world. And, and a lot of it remains hidden to us. A mystery to us. But just because there's a lot about the way God works that I don't understand, I cannot let that keep me from praying. It's clear in Acts chapter 12 that the prayers of the people were instrumental in the miraculous release of Peter. If they had given up, if they had figured, oh, what's the use? I mean, James is already dead. I'm sure the same's going to happen to Peter, and why bother to pray? If that would have been their attitude, I don't think Peter would have been released. And it all goes back to this bold truth we, we looked at a few minutes ago. There are some things God either cannot or will not do until and unless people pray. John Wesley, the founder of Me the Methodist movement, had his own version of this bold truth. He said, God does nothing except in answer to prayer. God does nothing except in answer to prayer. So my question for you today then is, what are you praying for? What are you praying earnestly for? You know, I believe in praying for healing. I do that. I, believe, I pray for safety, especially for my family. And, but I want you to know, if, if that's all we pray for, we're not praying like Christians. 
If all we want God to do is keep my family and friends safe and protect this little bubble I live in, I don't know that that's in enough is Christian prayer. Because Jesus breaks our bubble and brings us into God's kingdom. You know, the early Christians, uh, they were under grave threat many times. And they didn't always just, they weren't just content to pray for safety. They had something much more important to pray about. They prayed for boldness. In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, it's got this wonderful scripture. The, the, the believers had gathered together and they prayed this. Here's part of their prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to be safe all the time. No. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And this isn't just the preachers. This is the people. Women and men, young and old. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? That God would enable you to speak his word with great boldness. And then they prayed that God would stretch out his hand. So there's that word again, right? They prayed that God would stretch out his hand and perform healings and signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. Not because they were desperate for God to protect their little bubble, but because they knew that along with their bold speaking, these miracles would open hearts to the gospel. And after they prayed, it was God who gave the amen because the building they were in began to rumble, began to sh rattle, shake, was it a well-timed earthquake? I don't know. But more significantly, the Holy Spirit fell upon them in a fresh outpouring and their prayer was answered and they all began to be more bold about God's word, about the message of the gospel. There are some things God either cannot or will not do until and unless people pray. Our series today is bold, our series during Lent is bold praying, bold living. And uh, usually here at the end of a, of a sermon, I'm the one leading in a prayer, right? Well, today we're not going to do that. I'm going to let you do it. What I'd like you to do is, is turn to one or two other people near you and uh, join hands and see if, if one of you will lead in a prayer for God to enable you to pray and speak and live boldly now you may get with two or three people and none of the three none of you say well I don't want to say the prayer well then turn to the people in front of you or behind you and that, get to that group and maybe make your group a little larger and find one or two of them that might be willing to pray and I guess you just keep making your group larger until you find somebody to pray right okay uh, and as you pray listen maybe you'll feel something begin to rumble under your feet. Maybe you'll begin to feel something shake within your soul. Open yourself to the Holy Spirit. So, turn to one another. Pray that God would enable you to pray and speak and live with great boldness.